Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's God's word for God's people today. You may be seated and let's pray once again and ask for God's help. So Father, we know the truth that it is in Christ alone that we stand. It's in his death alone that we live. And it's in him alone that we have freedom. But we pray now that those truths would not just penetrate our minds, but our hearts, so that we might not only know you, but love you more and follow you as Lord and Savior all the days of our lives. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Uh, In the early hours of last Sunday morning, I woke up with a fever, which lasted most of the last week. And the Lord has been gracious to me in that I don't often get sick. It's been actually quite a while since I have. But when I do, I am a terrible patient. I can't stand doing nothing for very long. I don't know how many times Becky had to tell me to stop wandering around the house aimlessly and go sit down. I mean, at one point, I found myself with my face pressed up against a window screen because I hadn't been outside for days and I just wanted some fresh air. Then I snuck back to the couch before she yelled at me for that. Now she, she was just, I'm just a terrible patient. It's not her, it's me. But it's hard enough then, if you're like that, to not push it too hard when you start to feel a little bit better because I don't like sitting around doing nothing. And so even when I started to feel better, I had to sit around and do nothing, which made it even more difficult to just sit there and do nothing. So then I'm trying to study Galatians chapter 5, and I see Paul's command to stand firm. And it keeps sounding like the command to stop wandering about aimlessly and sit still. But nothing could be further from the truth. Stand firm is actually a command to hold on to the gospel with everything you've got and to never let go. Stand firm. And you see the word therefore right after that command to stand firm, therefore? That tells us that we need to look at what was just said to really understand why we're told to stand firm. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So Jesus didn't come to earth to teach us how we could earn salvation or to teach us the steps to start cleaning ourselves up a little bit before he did the rest. Nor did he come to start some process that then he left us some instructions so that we could finish it. Since Christ has set us free, 
Jesus came to free sinners so that they could live in freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Because we once were enslaved to sin and death and the elementary principles of the world. But Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins on the cross. And when he rose to life, three days later, he sealed his people's deliverance from enslavement to the present evil age. So we are free. Fact. Free. Therefore, therefore, because that is true, stand firm. Stand firm in that truth that Christ has set us free. Which means standing firm is not the same as standing still. It's not. Standing firm does not mean stand still. It means put all your hope in the love and grace of Jesus Christ so that you're absolutely immovable. To so put your, all your hope and your trust in him, to so bask in his love that you will not go anywhere else. And that's why there's a command of what not to do at the end of verse 1. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So standing firm isn't standing still and doing nothing. It's hoping in Christ alone and not moving on from that hope. It's not giving yourself again to the things Jesus freed you from. And so friends, the gospel is the good news of what has already been done. Look at the order of verse one. Christ has set you free for freedom. That's what's first. Truth, done, fact. And that's all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Secondly, stand firm in Christ. Don't go back to slavery. It's already done. There's nothing left to do. So stand firm. And the true gospel always declares what our triune God has done before there's any call to action. And our, the, the, the gospel, the true gospel, always declares first what God has already done before there's any call to action. Because the gospel isn't a program of what you need to do. Doing is slavery. Just jumping from one program of doing to another program of doing isn't freedom, it's slavery. But faith in Jesus is freedom. You're free from doing. He's already done it. So stand firm in what he's done, which is not standing still. It's planting both feet onto Christ as your solid rock of righteousness before God and then living from that righteousness. And so verses two to six give us three ways we stand firm. What does it mean? It's not nothing. It's not doing nothing. It's standing firm. And so we stand firm in faith, we stand firm in hope, and we stand firm in love. Stand firm in faith, hope, and love. So first, stand firm in faith. Now, the Galatians are under attack from false teachers preaching a false gospel of works. And so Paul calls them to stand firm in faith. Look at verses 2 and 3. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So again, the Judaizers didn't reject faith or Jesus. They really liked Jesus. He thought he was a fine fellow. They just, re they just rejected that God saves sinners by faith alone in Jesus alone. 
he's a really great dude, but you got to add to it. Yeah, he's essential. Sure, we really like Jesus. No one's saying anything bad about Jesus. But the way to God includes your works of the law. And Paul says, if the Galatians, and then by extension anyone, walks down that road, you're really walking away from Jesus. To turn to works is to turn away from Jesus. Now, you may not be tempted by any part of the Mosaic law, but we still have the same impulse within us to try to work for or add to our standing before God through our good works. It is innate within human beings to work for or add to our standing before God through what we can do. So whether or not you're a terrible patient like I am and don't like sitting still, we all have the tendency within us to earn to work God's favor, to work to earn God's favor. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, our parents, after sinning, tried to cover themselves when God's presence came to them. When they were going to enter the presence of God, they tried to cover themselves. They tried to do it themselves. They tried to work their way back into God's favor to clean themselves up. And just like that, we too try to work our way back into God's favor. That's the definition of legalism. To work to earn God's favor. I like how John Piper defines it. He says it this way. Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground, the basis of our acceptance with God, the ground of God being for us rather than against us. We desire, it's a good desire to have God for you, not against you. But law-keeping is not the way for that to be true. Making human ability or activity the basis of God's favor or justification or his being for you or his saving you, to make that the basis of it is actually to walk away from the only one who can save you. To turn to yourself is to walk away from the only one who can save you. If we attempt any work for God's favor, Paul says Christ is of no advantage to you. In other words, adding to Jesus' finished work is the same thing as rejecting Jesus' finishing work. Do you see? To add to Jesus' finished work is exactly the same as rejecting Jesus' finished work. And that is not an exaggeration. And Paul says in verse 3, if they take on circumcision, they're obligated to keep the entire law. Now, he's not talking about a medical procedure. He's not just talking about the act. He's talking about accepting circumcision in order to become part of God's people. That's what the false gospel was. Sure, you can have faith in Jesus, but if you really want to be part of God's people, you got to take on the law. you got to keep the food laws and the festivals, and if you're a male, you got to be circumcised. Then, and only then, are you truly part of God's people. And verse 3 says, if you go that route, you have to keep the whole law for salvation. And the law is a package deal. It's a combo, and not the good kind that you want at lunchtime to save a few bucks. This is a package deal that if you take on one part of the law, you have to take on all of it. And the fine print on that combo deal is you're obligated to perfectly obey all of it. And then the finer print says, oh, and by the way, it's impossible for you to actually keep it perfectly, which will result in you being cursed, not blessed. 
So Paul is just rehashing what we've seen in chapter 3, especially in verse 10, when he says this, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? So if you take on circumcision, you're going to take on the whole law. But if you do that, you're going to be under a curse. Not if, you will. Why? For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. And the implied point there, as we, if you remember chapter 3, is you can't. It is impossible for sinful human beings to perfectly obey the law. Because you have to do it perfectly and perpetually. You don't get a day off. You don't get a moment off. You don't get a nanosecond off. You have to keep it perpetually perfectly. And you can't, so you'll be cursed. If you rely on one work of the law, you're required to do everything in the law. And since no one can keep the entire law, relying on your works for God's justification won't bring blessing, but only curse. And it's pretty ironic, isn't it? I mean, they were considering taking on part of the law in order to be God's people. But that, in fact, would actually ensure that they would be left out of God's people. The very thing they want is the very thing they're going to guarantee they don't get if they go this way. And so, brothers and sisters, adding anything to Jesus is actually rejecting Jesus. There's no compromise between works and and grace. You can either have all of Christ or you can have none of him. And so begin each day meditating upon all of God's goodness to you in Jesus Christ. It's true. You're free. He's yours. Everything he has is yours by faith. Don't go back. Don't submit again to anything less than that. Meditate upon all his goodness to you, that what you could never do, he did. And all he has and all he is is truly and completely yours by free grace alone. And so you don't have to live for God's acceptance, for God's favor, for God's blessing, nor you do have to live to keep any of it. We get to live freely from it. So stand firm in faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do, we secondly stand firm in hope. Stand firm in hope. Look at verses 4 and 5. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law or who would attempt to, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, the word hope in the Bible is very different than the word hope in English. Hope is running sky high this weekend in Detroit after the Lions drafted several players onto a team that was routinely said and expected to not only win the division, <laughs> to not only make the playoffs, to not only win a playoff game. The word Super Bowl and the Detroit Lions were put in the same sentence and not with laughs. They're like, they're going. Now, hope in English means hope so because I don't care what any of them says. None of them can guarantee that. They can't. There's lots of hope. 
I mean, they make, they make lots of money when you click on all those little ads and articles and all that stuff. You get them all the views. They just want your money, right? You who are drinking Hallelujah Blue Kool-Aid, right? They just, that's what they want. They get your hopes up, and then they crush them, and then write more articles about how you were ridiculously to believe them, right, in the first place. Anyways, you see what the English word hope means. It means hope so. But biblical hope means no doubt. No doubt. And if we know anything about anything, it's that things in this world and no doubt never go together. And that's why biblical hope is so powerful. Because in an uncertain world, God's people have certain hope that Christ is returning. And when Christ returns, Rather than receiving his judgment, his people will receive his welcome. Rather than receiving judgment from his hands, we'll receive welcome from them. For God will declare us righteous in Jesus on the last day. That's the hope, the hope of righteousness. I will be declared righteous by faith in Christ when that last day arrives. If your faith alone is in Jesus alone, you are truly righteous right now. It is true. But throughout Galatians and throughout the New Testament, what we see is we're also awaiting that final day, that salvation to come. In Romans 8, it's called glorification. We're waiting for this last day that has not yet arrived. And on that day, we will finally and fully receive the full verdict of not guilty, truly righteous in Jesus, and will be glorified for life in eternity with God. That's a certain hope. It's coming. That day is coming. And that verdict is not in doubt. So how do we wait for the arrival of that day? That's Paul's point. That's what he's trying to drive home. What are you supposed to be doing right now and every day until that day arrives? We wait with eager hope, not anxious work. We live and hope eagerly in Jesus. We stand firm in hope. We don't stand firm in a hope-so-anxious kind of work. You see, if grace and works are mutually exclusive grounds, basis for our justification before God, standing firm in faith means our lives aren't given to anxiously working for the hope of righteousness. You see what Paul's doing? He says, this day is coming. Judgment is coming. What are we supposed to do in light of that? We're not supposed to anxiously fret to wonder what's going to happen on that last day. We wait with eager hope that that righteousness that is mine now in Jesus will be mine fully then. So I'm not given to anxiously working each day for righteousness, as in, well, when that last day comes, I hope I've done enough when when Jesus comes. Like, that's the hope-so kind of hope. No, rather than anxiously working for the hope of righteousness, we live each day eagerly awaiting it. That what's already true of mine will be completely true then. And if Christ is your only hope, then your days won't be filled with anxious work for God's acceptance but eagerly awaiting the day when you finally see your hope of righteousness face to face, when your faith is sight, when the 
not hope so hope, but the guaranteed hope, hope is finally yours. And because we, uh, that is true, then we don't wait by striving for righteousness by our works, but rather through the Spirit, we stand firm each day hoping in God's power and promises. That hope isn't yours because you have great faith or you finally figured it all out. It's because you're putting your eyes on Jesus each day and you know he won't fail in his promises and his power. So think about it this way. If you hope in yourself and in your ability to make it through on that last day, that's the kind of hope this world offers. Not just flimsy, but failing. If you're hoping in yourself, Paul says, the only, hopes, or the only guaranteed hope you have is that you'll get curse, not blessing. But through the Spirit, we hope in Christ. And so we don't need to hope in anything or anyone else. We already have everything we need in him. And that kind of hope comes only through the Spirit. For we can't hope in Christ without the Holy Spirit enabling us to do so. It's through the Spirit, not the flesh. It's all by grace through faith, not human works. It's the Spirit giving us the power to do this. I like how Tom Schreiner puts it. He puts it this way in his commentary on Galatians. He says, Believers do not base their hope on their obedience, but in faith cling. That's what we do each day. Grab hold of what God has done for us in Christ. Such looking away from oneself to Christ is the work of the Spirit. It cannot be produced by human willpower. The Holy Spirit transforms human beings so that they put their trust in God's saving work instead of relying on themselves. The only way you can look away from yourself is through the Spirit giving you the ability to do so. And when you do, the Spirit will so put your hope on Jesus that you will stand firm in that hope alone because he is the only hope for sinners. And because this is true, because Jesus is the only hope, the sole hope, the exclusive hope, verse 4 sounds a dire warning. If you hope in anything or anyone else, you are severed from Christ. We're, we, we come into this room to worship Jesus because this is not true of us. Be, because Christ has saved us. Christ has made us his. Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again for our justification in life. And in, in light of that, think about just for a moment what it would mean if you were severed from him, cut off from him. He was unreachable, unclingable, unhopable for you. I don't know if there's a scarier thought than that. I thought maybe God's holiness in light of my sin is a pretty scary thought. But what has taken the fear out of that is Jesus. It's not that I don't fear God's holiness, it's that it's in a different way now. So that's God's holiness and my sin, that's a pretty scary thought. What's scarier, though, is God's sin, or excuse me, God's holiness and my sin and no Jesus. Being cut off from Christ is the most horrific thought in the world. And Paul warns that if you try to earn God's favor and acceptance, then you are cut off from Christ and have abandoned the gospel. 
He's not saying the Galatians are severed. He's not declaring that this is true. It's a warning. He's saying, if you go this route, you're severed from Christ. You who would try to justify yourself, you've fallen away from grace. You have abandoned your only hope. That will result, you trying to earn your salvation will result in your being cut off from Christ. You are severed from him. And you can even hear the play on words in English because the knife of circumcision doesn't just sever a piece of skin. It severs your entire self from the only savior of sinners. And when it comes to God justifying sinners, declaring them not guilty and completely righteous, when it comes to that declaration, grace and works cannot coexist. To have one is to abandon the other. And so choosing works is to fall away from grace. It's to abandon the gospel. It's to stiff-arm God's grace and say, I can do it. And so Paul isn't addressing here the question of whether or not a a believer, a person can lose their salvation. He's not not addressing that question. Uh, That question's definitively answered elsewhere, that those who walk away from Jesus and never repent repent prove that they were never truly saved in the first place so it's not that you can fall away from grace it's that if you go this route it proves that you never tasted that grace in the first place and if you never turn away it proves you weren't ever of the people of God but Paul's point here in saying it this way is that you're never just choosing grace or works but that choosing one is to reject the other. We do this all the time in life, don't we? We, uh, we, often, we often say things like this in our house. If you're going to do that, you don't get to do that. You, you, can, you can do whichever one, but you can't do it all. We only have so much time. So if you choose that, it's to not choose that. You can have ice cream or cake, you can't have both. Not all the time. Sometimes we, we're, 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 we're fine parents. We let them have cake and ice cream at times. But there's times when you're like, you can choose one or the other. And my kids will be like, but I love ice cream. And I love cake. Well, you got to choose one, right? Now, that's a terrible metaphor because both of those things are amazing. And why would anyone ever make you choose between them? I don't know. Because I guess somewhere deep down, we're trying to justify ourselves as parents. You can't have that much sugar. But when it comes to grace and works, it's, that's, it's, they're not the same. So the, the metaphor just goes right off the cliff at that point. I'm not saying both are great. What I'm saying is we make these choices all the time, and Paul is just bringing it up for us, that to choose one is also at the same time to reject the other. You cannot have both. That's the purpose of the warning, that if you begin to trust in works, you're falling away from grace. Now, people then wonder if true believers can actually fall away from grace, why does Paul warn the church about falling away from grace? Like, what's the point of the warning? What's its purpose? Why are there warnings in the Bible if God's people cannot fall away? 
Well, again, Tom Schreiner hopefully writes this way. He says, Arminians interpret these warnings to teach that believers can lose their salvation. And too often, reformed believers ignore such warnings altogether. God has promised to keep you by his grace. But the warnings are one of the means God uses to keep us trusting in Christ. Warnings are not opposed to promises, but are one of the means God uses to fulfill his promises, namely of keeping his people by grace. Just like road signs keep us driving safely on the highway, so warnings remind us to keep putting our trust in Christ alone. To taste and see that Jesus is good every day. To know you can't go anywhere else. And not only that, you don't need to go anywhere else. Jesus is enough. And the warnings remind us that that is true. And they're one of God's ways to keep us trusting in Christ alone. So rather than being at odds with the gospel of grace, God provides his people warnings to deepen their faith in the gospel of grace. God provides warnings to keep us standing firm in hope, to not go anywhere else, not put our trust and our hope in anything else but in Christ alone. And brothers and sisters, what you hope for, what you hope in, shapes how you live. I can discern, and so can those around you, what you're truly hoping in by the things you choose to do. Whatever you ultimately desire for life and for joy and satisfaction, that thing shapes how you live. In other words, you do what you want to do. You do what you love. What you love, you're going to go after. What you hope in will shape your decisions. So if you hope in Christ alone, that will shape your life. We will see it. It will be visible. That visibility doesn't ensure your salvation. It adds nothing to your salvation. It makes visible what is already true of you. It's the picture of baptism. No one's hoping that I can do something magical in those waters and that they're not really saved until we say something and then they go under some water. It's, it's what's already, it's making visible what's already true. And the same is for what we hope in. If Jesus is who we hope in, that will bear fruit in your life. It, it, it will show. Your affection for Jesus will shape your life. And so one way to stand firm in hope is to deepen your affection for Jesus. If your hope is in Jesus, do you put yourself in the position to know him more? To trust him more? To see how more glorious he is than any other hope? That he never fails when other hopes do and have? Do you put yourself in a position to love him more? To, to find him more beautiful? To find him more amazing? To find him more powerful? Do you? Or do the things you hope in, do they rule your life that are just simply flimsy and will fail you ultimately? You can't hope in something you don't know. And so press into knowing Christ and his surpassing 
worth, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3, isn't it? He's not questioning his salvation. He's not saying, I gotta earn it. I gotta get up in the morning and do something to finish this salvation. No, he said, Jesus saved me. I'm gonna press in to know him and his surpassing worth. That's what Paul's calling us to do when he calls us to stand firm in hope. To hope in Christ alone and to know him more so that you will never move on. Which then thirdly will lead to standing firm in love. Standing firm in love. Look at verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If we're gonna stand firm in faith and in hope, that will inevitably result in our standing firm in love. The certain hope Christians have on the last day is that the righteousness needed to stand justified before God, that's given as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And since it's a gift and not a work, then the only thing that matters on the last day is being united to Jesus by faith. You will not, your, your works will not be weighed. It's are you in Christ or not? It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter if you've kept the law or not. What matters is whether or not your hope and faith are in Christ alone. And so all this talk then of not doing any work of the law would probably start to make some people in the Galatian church who weren't considering circumcision or hadn't been circumcised yet or hadn't started following the food laws and the festival laws, it would probably start to get them to think, well, hey, I'm doing pretty great. Not like those people. They got caught up in the Judaizers. Paul says, no, 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 don't, that's not it either. That doesn't, circumcised or uncircumcised is not what matters. If you're trusting in the works you do, you're under a curse. If you trust in the works you don't do, you're under a curse. Because Paul says justification is not what about you, is not about what you do or don't do. It is about entirely looking away from self and wholly upon Christ. And Paul knows it's not just that then there could be some pockets of pride of what people haven't done or what they haven't considered. He also knows there's a tension now that he's created in saying grace and works are mutually exclusive grounds for justification. The basis. You know what the tension is? The tension is when, you, when people hear grace and works cannot coexist when it comes to God saving sinners, they hear grace and works don't coexist, period. They're mutually exclusive, period. If it's all grace, then works don't matter. I can just live however I want. I'm free. But what shape does the freedom we have look like? What shape does the freedom in Christ take in our lives? It is not doing whatever you want. Verse 6 says it looks like love. It's not that faith works your salvation. It's that saving faith works itself out in love. Doing whatever you want is slavery to self and sin, isn't it? That's just a different kind of form of slavery. You're still enslaved. But the freedom that comes from the faith that looks to Christ alone for salvation 
That faith alone produces love. And that order, faith then love, is vitally important. Our loving God and others counts for nothing when it comes to our justification. The only thing that counts on that front is faith, alone, in Christ, alone. But the fruit of that true faith in Christ will result in standing firm in love. So you see, the, the Judaizers came telling everyone that Paul preached a half gospel. He forgot to tell you, you need to work the law. Works, works, and Jesus save, right? So Paul has confronted that definitively for four straight chapters. But now Paul confronts another half gospel. If works don't save, then works have no place in the Christian life. And verse 6 adamantly rejects that. That's a half gospel too. Faith alone and Christ alone saves. But saving faith is never alone. It is faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. Listen to John Calvin. He's arguing with the Roman Catholics about this in verse 6. He wrote this about Galatians 5, 6. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. What he's saying is, just like if you, let, uh, you lose the light of the sun, you lose its heat. You, you, you can't have one without the other. If you don't want the sun's light, you're going to cut yourself off from its heat. If you don't want its heat, you cut, itself off, you cut yourself off from its light. Just like that, if you add anything to Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial, and sufficient work to save sinners, you lose Jesus. You lose the gospel. But it's equally true that if your faith in Christ doesn't produce love in you and through you, then you don't have the gospel either. You don't have it. You, just as you can't have the sun's light without its heat, you can't have the gospel if you don't have love. Because how could it not, brothers and sisters? And this has been Paul's driving force throughout this letter. Our Savior gave himself in love for us on the cross. He delivered us with his very self from this present evil age. And if you, by faith, are now united to that loving Savior, how can you not love as you have been loved? And it's even more amazing, and actually a tad scandalous, that verse 6 actually uses the word work. He has been bashing works for four straight chapters. And then he goes, not every work, though. Faith works through love. He uses the word work to make the point. You don't work for salvation, but when God saves sinners, that faith 
alone that saves will work in them and through them in love. True faith in Jesus Christ produces true love for God and others. It does. It will. It has to. The God who is love saves sinners and makes them his people, and his people will then be a reflection of that love. True faith in love, or excuse me, true faith in Christ produces true love in God's people. So here's the litmus test, brothers and sisters, for everyone who says they believe the gospel. Is your life characterized by love? There's no such thing as a harsh, cruel, unloving Christian. There is no such thing as a harsh, cruel, unloving Christian. Now, I'm not saying that we can never sin in those ways. What I am saying is what you do cannot be who you are. That there would be some dissonance when you're cruel or harsh or unloving from who you really are. And the Spirit convicts you of that. And you're like, that is, that's the old, that is not who I am in Jesus. So I'm not saying that we can never sin in those ways. We may do those things, but those of true faith will not be those things. They will not characterize you. They will not be normal for you. And increasingly so. As you stand firm in faith and in hope, you will increasingly stand firm in love. We're not doing this perfectly. God doesn't say you'll do this perfectly. He says it will be working through love. You will be more and more loving as Christ has loved you. And I think this is where the picture of standing is so helpful, isn't it? Standing. He doesn't say, go love. Go love and you'll be saved. He says, stand firm. Therefore, and don't submit. And this faith that you're going to stand firm in, which will lead you to stand firm in hope, will then inevitably produce love. So you see, Paul isn't calling us to a different kind of working. And far too often, this is where we get the order out of whack, and then we get lost, and then we go off all sideways on this and get this wrong. Paul's not calling us to a new kind of work. It's not like he's now calling us to love working. And God, because God used to save by law working, that's just, a, that's just a new kind of slavery. All that would do is make us slaves to anxious toil and constantly wonder if, you're, if I'm loving enough. Am I doing enough? Am I loving enough? I loved my heart out today. And then I get up the next morning and go, man, I didn't love anyone at all. I got so prideful in my love. I'm loving myself. You see the anxious toil this new kind of working would bring us to? But the truth is, brothers and sisters, even though we will never love enough and could never do enough, Christ is enough. Stand. Stand in that. He doesn't say work. He says stand. And so it's not a new kind of working but to stand firm in the work Jesus has already done. And so it's not so much that we have to love. That's also where we get it, get off a little bit. 
it's not just that we have to love. Like you get up every morning going, okay, I gotta love today. Again. Uh, I don't know. I need some extra coffee today because I'm going to be hanging out with that dude. That's just a new kind of slavery. So it's not that you have to love. No, it's rather that our faith gets to work in love. You see the difference? I don't get up dreading it. I get up rejoicing in the great love with which God has loved me. And the more I rejoice in it and taste it and know it and relish it, it frees me in that joy of God's love to work through love. Now it's not an obligation. It's a joy. I'm free. And that's why I love the song that we sing, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. It just rehearses the gospel again. Death was once my great opponent. Because right? that last day is coming. An eternal death for those who are severed from Christ is on the horizon. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. That, if that day comes, that fear. And then, before the gospel, I try to work my way. I'm trying to love enough, do enough, earn enough, be right enough. That's just more fear. I'm not sure I can ever be enough. I will never be enough. There's fear. It once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. So free from every plan of darkness, yes. Now I'm free to live and free to love. I don't have to love, I get to. And the more I bask in God's love for me, the more free I will be in living in love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. And because it was, there's nothing left for sinners to do. And so we're free to stand firm in faith and hope and in love. And so friend, do you know this freedom in Jesus? You know the freedom that he offers by free grace alone to sinners who don't deserve it? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. Walk with me. Do you know that freedom? If you hear him calling to you and calling you to himself, do not harden your heart, but come in repentance and faith in Jesus, for he alone saves sinners. And brothers and sisters, as we await that last day, that is soon coming. May the Holy Spirit continue to keep us standing firm in faith and hope and in love. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would never allow us to get the order of the gospel wrong. That we wouldn't abandon one half gospel to take on another half gospel. But that by grace you would keep us trusting in Christ alone, that every day that hope would be ours and we would stand firm in it, knowing the last day is coming and your righteousness with it. And until that day, would the faith that you have given us work itself in love so that more and more our neighbors in the nations would see and hear 
of our Savior who loved sinners and gave himself for them to free them from the present evil age and gave them a certain hope. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for doing it in us, and we pray that you would not only deepen our faith, but that you would use us for the glory of your name in our acts of love. Amen.